This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Coming up later, a tribute to Richard Woolcott, one of Australia's most distinguished diplomats and mandarins who died this week at age 95. I think most Australians are sort of unaware of the size and importance of Indonesia and really there's a major task for people like us to see that they do become better informed about where Indonesia is going. That was Dick Woolcott, who died this week at age 95. Stay with us for my last interview with the former diplomat and Mandarin. But first, the state of post-Brexit Britain. Well, June marks seven years since the Brexit referendum. And this week marks three years since Britain formally left the EU. So how does Britain fare today? Well, put it this way. Since 2016, the UK has had five prime ministers. That's right, five prime ministers. David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. The five prior prime ministers, these are the British prime ministers, they spanned about 35 years. James Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Listen to Alistair Heath. He's the editor of the UK Sunday Telegraph and a Brexiteer. This is the quote. Britain as we know it faces an existential crisis. Crippled by scores of pathologies, from an imploding health service to sliding real wages, our status as one of the wealthiest, most civilised countries in the world That's at risk for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. Now, that's the leading British columnist, Alistair Heath. Is all this a fair assessment? Daniel Hannan has been one of the leading intellectual and political proponents of Britain's withdrawal from the European Union for decades. From 1999 to 2019, he was a UK Conservative member of the European Parliament. He's been a prominent and prolific commentator in the British and international press for the past quarter century, writing a weekly column in the UK Sunday Telegraph. I should also stress from the outset that Dan and I are very good mates, but being on the ABC, I'll try to subject him to some scrutiny. (laughs) G'day, Dan. Welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you very much. It's always great to be with you. Indeed. Now, listen, first of all, a soft question, but your response to Alistair Heath's Uh, lament about the state of post-Brexit Britain? So it is definitely the case that we have made mistakes. Uh, We've been too slow to deregulate, we've been too quick to raise tax, and we've been reluctant to embrace global trading opportunities. But honestly, by far the biggest problem has been the lockdown for us as for everybody else. But I think in some ways worse for the UK because we did it more strictly and more enthusiastically than some countries. And the trouble is that we're still in denial about it. We spent something like £400 billion and we're trying to carry on as if that didn't happen. And of course, that's impossible. No one's really leveled with the public about the cost of it. And so until we're prepared to acknowledge that 
uh, you know, we spent a great deal of money and that therefore we have to stop spending. Just spending has to drop back to pre-lockdown level, levels rather than tax rising to meet the new spending levels. I think all of the things that Alistair says are completely true. I, I mean, Alistair, you know, you're, you, you, you kindly said you're, you're a friend of mine and, and so is he. And, and uh, you know, he, he's not the cheeriest. Uh, he's, not the, he's never the cheeriest columnist out there, right? It's, um, it's pretty it's, depressing uh, reading. It's, yeah. It's never hard to distinguish between one of Alistair's columns and a ray of sunshine. But I mean, he's onto something there, right? He's, he's, uh, he's, as long as we keep on thinking that we can spend our way out of trouble, you know, the troubles are going to keep piling up. Okay, but sticking to Brexit, though, a Brexit Britain was supposed to embrace trade deals far superior to anything the EU had managed to negotiate. How are those free trade deals going, Dan? Well, they, 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 they've started, right? We have a we have a free trade deal with Australia that we didn't have before. The uh, the EU doesn't have one. Uh, we have a free trade deal with New Zealand, and we are uh, going. I very much hope to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPT, CPTPP this year. But no chance of a free trade deal with America anytime soon. That was a big hope. Well, sadly, America is, is not doing free trade deals. I think Donald Trump has permanently and malignly shifted mm. the dial on trade, and both parties now are just against doing free trade deals with anyone. But, you know, we're, we're, we're talking... Um, in some detail about a very ambitious deal with India. Uh, we've got talks underway with the, the Gulf states, uh, and we've got exploratory talks with the other South American countries not covered by CPTPP. Uh, we've actually signed, just in terms of uh, catching up as an independent country, more trade deals, I think, than any country in a comparable period of history ever. So um, I think that is one thing that is going well. Uh, but look, uh, you know, the best tra trade deals in the world are not going to make up for the $400 billion that we squandered on the lockdown. You, you mentioned the Australian trade deal. This is Andrew Neil, the distinguished or the former distinguished, the former BBC presenter um, and Sunday Times editor, past guest on this program, someone we both know reasonably well. He says this about the Australian trade deal, Dan, quote, a former Tory minister claims that as Trade Secretary, Liz Truss had given away the store to clinch a trade deal with Australia as quickly as possible so she could boast about it. So what's Britain got out of the free trade deal with Australia? Well, we've got much cheaper Australian uh, imports. I mean, that is an incredibly weird mercantilist criticism for Andrew to make, right? The idea that, okay, we're admitting all this Australian beef and lamb, but what are we getting in exchange? We're getting the beef, right? We're getting the lamb, you know, delicious, high quality products at a competitive price. The idea that trade deals are all about your surplus, you know, was debunked by Adam Smith in the in the 1770s, right? It's the, 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 the real advantage of trade is being able to buy cheaper stuff so that your people can live at the same standard of living working shorter hours or can have a surplus that they then spend on other stuff, which stimulates the whole economy, right? That's that's how countries get rich. And, you know, I, I've been really struck by how many um, sort of reluctant Europhiles who can't really get their heads around what happened with the referendum are still stuck in this line of criticism of, oh, we've admitted all this produce from Australia and New Zealand, we're flooding our country. In any other circumstance, they'd be celebrating it. You know, if this was an EU-Australia trade deal, they'd never be making those criticisms. On the economy, though, this is The Economist magazine just a few weeks ago. Quote, the 2016 vote uh, to leave the bloc 
That has exacerbated Britain's economic malaise. And The Economist goes on to say the Bank of England has estimated that Brexit depressed investment by almost 25% over the five years to 2021. One thing, Tank, this is The Economist, they reckon the economy would be more than 5% bigger now if Britain had stayed in the EU. Now, that's The Economist magazine on post-Brexit Britain, Daniel Hannan. Yeah, well, obviously, they had a very strong position against Brexit, and, and that's colouring what they're saying now. But if we look at the facts, I mean, to say all the investment has dried up, and we, we just passed the two trillion mark. We've had more uh, foreign direct investment than anywhere else in the EU since the referendum and indeed since Brexit took effect. Is and that the a idea fact? That, that is a fact. And in fact, I, wow. I, I'm looking at a, at a tweet now from the economist Julian Jessup, if your listeners want to have a look at it uh, on Twitter. Uh, and he's quoting the official statistics that show that if you count from the referendum, our economy has grown exactly the same amount as Germany's, 5.7% from, from 2016 Goodness. to now. I know, but that might have happened uh, if Britain stayed in the EU. We'll never know. Well, that's it. Right. I can't prove a negative. Nobody can. So, you know, mm. of course, it is always possible to say, well, if we'd stayed in the EU, our growth rates would have been even better. I mean, that, that, that's a necessarily impossible argument to, to determine mm. one way or the other. But it's worth reminding ourselves that the claim that these guy, guys made in the run up to the referendum was that it would be an absolute catastrophe, that there'd be a fall in investment, that there'd be a rise in unemployment, that there'd be a collapse of the stock exchange. The opposite of all those things happened. You know, the stock exchange rose, unemployment is at its lowest level ever, uh, investment continued to rise, the economy continued to grow. You know, in fact, we outgrew the EU. We have outgrown the EU in every year since the referendum, except 2020, because of the severity of our lockdown in that year. Okay, but with Brexit, I mean, Britain's conservative governments, they were supposed to create a uh, and this is what you championed in the 2016 referendum, a low tax, low regulation economic environment which would unleash homegrown entrepreneurs, turn the country into a beacon of for foreign investment. You know, you have all these enterprising business immigrants flooding to the shores of, uh, of the UK. Is, is that Singapore on the Thames, is that still going to happen? Well, look, I mean, there, there I think you've got, uh, you, there on your, you're on very solid ground making that criticism, right? I mean, we have been very, very slow to take advantage of the both the commercial and the regulatory opportunities. There's been a real reluctance to diverge. And particularly our standing bureaucracy, our civil service, just has been clinging desperately to all the same EU standards, even though they now give us no preferential export rights. It's a, it's a, it's a, a quite bizarre sort of psychology. Uh, whether that would have happened as much had it not been for the protectionist mood induced by COVID, who can ever uh, know, right? Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a perfectly valid point. We, we, we could, and I had expected that by now we would have been much more ambitious in terms of cutting red tape. The British Tories, and you're a member of the Tory party and you've been a prominent spokesperson for the Tory party in the European Parliament for so long until recently, They've supported a corporation tax, so it's really a tax on company profits, let's be clear, but that's rising from 19% to 25%. This is under the Tories, and that will place Britain at the higher end of the global league table for corporate taxes. Meanwhile, the overall tax burden in Britain, it's rising to record levels, something like 30% plus, and then so is public spending as a share of GDP. It's about... 
45%. So again, to quote Andrew Neil, these are the traditional hallmarks of a typical European social democracy. Daniel Hannan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that I've, I've, I've no disagreement with Andrew on that. It's been a real uh, mistake. And I think it's, you know, it, it's a kind of cheap populism. It's always easier to tax business because people get the vague impression that someone else is paying. But of course, a business no more pays business tax than your car pays the car disc or your, your TV mm. pays the TV license or your house pays the mortgage, right? I mean, all taxes are paid by human beings. How, how did Ronald Reagan put it? He said businesses, businesses can't pay taxes. They can only collect taxes, right? It's all passed mm -hmm. on to, to customers and, and employees and, and suppliers. So, yeah, it's, it's, that, that, is, that is a very bad mistake. Um, we've moved on from the Brexit argument, right? We're now in the field of being able to make our own mistakes as an independent country, and I'm afraid we have made some. Okay, but sticking with Brexit, though, immigration, I mean, some of the Brexit vote, not all of it, but some of it was fueled by the view that there was too much immigration. You've always made the point that it was about controls, but certainly some people, particularly in the northern England parts, uh, the Midlands, working-class constituencies, they wanted to cut immigration. Now, Tory politicians talked about getting the annual net migration numbers down to something like 100,000 a year. That hasn't happened under Brexit. In fact, net migration is still more than 250,000. Now, that's roughly where it was before Brexit. And we still have a labour shortage, right? I, I mean, I, 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 I realise this is a minority view. But we, we still need migrant labour to fill the jobs. There are, if any of your listeners has been to particularly the south of England, but actually any part of, of the UK recently, you'll have seen there are, there are vacancy notices in every shop window. We, don't, we, we haven't got enough uh, skilled workmen. We haven't got enough barmaids, plumbers, you know, receptionists, call centre workers. Uh, it's a global phenomenon too, so isn't it? It's a, this is true. This is true. But I, I think this is a really important point. People wanted a sense of control. And after the Brexit vote, immigration numbers rose, but the issue fell. The salience of the issue fell. People were quite prepared to sustain substantial numbers of immigration because they thought they had control. What changed is that in the last three years in particular, there has been a flotilla of small boats crossing the channel uh, with mainly Albanian young men in them. And that makes a mockery of the whole system. You know, Australia has done very well with a, an ambitious immigration policy, a, a policy of controlled legal immigration that brings in quite high numbers of people, which all of the parties basically accept. I mean, sure, you'll find people who, who in the abstract will say, yeah, the numbers are too high. But there isn't mm -hmm. any mainstream party here diverging from the, 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 the policy of bringing in skilled, talented, enterprising people. You're able to do that because... As John Howard put it, we decide who comes here mm. and the circumstances in which they come, or as, as, as Tony Abbott put it more pithily, because you stop the boats, right? That's the trade-off. You have mm. to show that the system is controlled and that, that you can't elbow your way to the front of the queue by paying people smugglers. And if you do that, then I think you can get consensus for high levels of migration. But at the moment in the UK, we haven't done that. Yeah, okay. You say a sense of control, but even just last year, the government's Rwanda refugee deal that was torpedoed, not because of the, um, the high rates of uh, cross-channel uh, boat people. It was torpedoed by some European human rights court. 
And the ruling, the preliminary ruling of that European Human Rights Court was incredibly given force by a middle-ranking Home Office official who ordered that the flight stay on the runway without any ministerial oversight at all. And that That's extraordinary. But isn't, isn't the point it, of Brexit that there'd be more power to the parliament? Right, right. And that's what we've got to fix. There's no point in taking power back from Brussels and then leaving it languishing in Whitehall. There's no point in being run by a set of unelected British officials instead of a set of unelected European officials. Yeah, but all those points notwithstanding, is it fair to say that the Remainers in Britain, have they been emboldened as never before? Well, they, I mean, I don't know about as never before, they never accepted the results in the first place because they regarded it as, you know, and they, and they did, they, they spent, you know, five years trying to overturn it, um, uh, literally trying to overturn it. But are they, it are they, to what extent are they emboldened by all these setbacks? Well, I mean, look, the, the latest poll was the one taken at the weekend. It showed 51% want to go into the EU and 49% don't. And this was this was brilliantly headlined, Brexit regret crows. Actually, that was a, that was a better... That was a better opinion poll from from a leave point of view than anything we had in the run up to the actual vote. Right, we we were. I'd have I'd have loved to have had polls that close in the run up to the vote in 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 June of 2016. On on the day we of course surpassed all the opinion polls and won. And for that reason, look, I, I, you know, rejoining is not an option. Right, it's, it's not going to happen. The EU is in no mood to offer terms, and and Starmer isn't going to spend the whole of his his time in parliament trying to have a second referendum but my worry is that if we don't diverge right if we if we pay the price of getting the freedom to have regulatory autonomy and then we don't exercise that freedom then we're getting the the worst of both worlds right and and so it's crazy for us not to use the powers we have to set regulations in a way that suit our own needs and conditions well dan i was at the pub the other night and i met one of our listeners and uh, he, he said to me, you should ask Dan Hannan whether this British government is really a conservative Tory government, because if you look at its energy policies, you know, more enthusiastic about net zero emissions than any Labor government here in Australia. Uh, it's been unable to manage the borders. They've imposed the highest tax burden since Clement Attlee. Uh, this was in the post-1945 period. And then, of course, there's this all manner of woke causes. And he just wanted to ask the question, can it be legitimately asked whether the governing party in Britain is really conservative? Well, indeed, it can legitimately be asked. And a lot of people are asking that question and, and hence our 20-point opinion poll deficit, right? But um, you had a massive landslide in late 2019, uh, what, a 90-seat mm. majority. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah I mean, and some, a lot of that was squandered for exactly the reasons that your mate in the pub. I love the way our mates in the pub are always the sort of authority on this. But on, on this occasion, your mate in the pub is really onto something. Uh, I, it, we have squandered a lot of that. Um, I, I would make some defence on the woke thing. I don't think that is coming from ministers. I think that's coming from the permanent mm. bureaucracy. But it is certainly the case that successive Tory ministers have taken the line of least resistance, the easiest short-term option, which usually involves more spending and a reluctance to deregulate. Because... You know, any any measures that you take to stimulate growth are always going to be unpopular in the immediate term because they, they're going to involve some change. They're going to involve some disruption. And Margaret Thatcher, everything she did in terms of stimulating the economy, polled really badly when she did it. Every privatization was unpopular. Lifting exchange controls was unpopular. Lifting price controls was unpopular. You know, And yet the effects of all these things were incredibly popular. And that's what we've got to remember, that you judge, you decide whether to do something, not by 
the popularity of the policy when you poll people in the abstract, but by the popularity of the effect of the policy. And in, in the case of Margaret Thatcher, once those things had happened, nobody wanted to go back. My guest is Daniel Hannan, one of Britain's leading conservative commentators and authors and a former veteran MP in the European Parliament. Dan, you've long been an optimist about the world's trajectory, but last year things changed. Uh, They're bad, things are bad, and they're going to get worse. This is what you argued recently in your Sunday Telegraph column. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, look, I've always considered myself in the sort of, you know, Stephen Pinker, Matt Ridley, Johan Norberg school of the world is getting better. Look at longevity. All past guests on this program, by the way. Yeah, the world's getting better. Absolutely. But what's happening? But you know what? I mean, even, I mean, how's this for breaking the sixth seal? Even Matt Ridley, when (laughs) reading the same article that you you just referred to, I think you're right about this. And the moment moment when things really hit me, it was actually this year, uh, just gone, the the last 12 months we've had. So in 20, Mm. the beginning of 2020, when I saw stories about China quarantining cities and, and locking people in, in their houses and so on, I thought, you know, thank God I live in a country where that could never happen. And boy, did I get that wrong. Uh, mm. At the end of 2020, we had the beginning of the vaccine rollout in the UK. And, you know, it was, it was beginning to look up. And I thought, well, that, thank God it's all over now. And actually, 2021 followed the same pattern. Uh, they kept on finding excuses to prolong the lockdown. Oh, we had, now, now it's about... You know, we have to vaccinate all the young people as well. And, and what about new strains? And what about long COVID? And so it was, it was almost like a policy in search of a justification. And then in 2022, they didn't even have those justifications. And yet the demand for big government, yeah. the, the demand for authoritarianism, let's call it what it is, has not diminished either in the UK or, or anywhere else. I'm, I'm afraid that yeah. the impact of the pandemic has been to change people's brain chemistry, to make people warier and more inward looking, more protectionist and, and yes, more autocratic, more in favour yes. of, of a sort of, you know, a, a, a system that punishes eccentric or outlying behaviour. And I just don't see that coming to an end in a hurry. Okay, but there's no question that you reflect this consensus among libertarians and classical liberals and even conservatives that things are getting pretty bad. But listen to Marion Tupi. He's from the free market Cato Institute in Washington. He makes this very clear. Quote, the world has never been more prosperous. Developed countries are astonishingly rich. And even in developing nations, the share of the population in absolute poverty is has fallen to single digits. So, so Dan, is your pessimism justified? It has been true in almost every year of my life that people have been getting better off uh, by every measure globally, right? Whether you measure health or wealth or female education or, you know, infant mortality or whatever, right? Uh, that stopped being true for a bit in 2020 because the lockdowns had a massive effect. And the and the the hangover of the lockdowns in terms of undiagnosed cancer and, and all the rest of it is still with us. And, and the mental health problems and the disrupted education, you know, it was an inconvenience in rich countries to have kids taught by Zoom. It was an absolute disaster in poor countries to have these closures. And and people are going to, you know, that's going to be a dent that isn't going to be hammered out of uh, of those kids' development. So I think it is very difficult to make the Marion Tupi argument about the last three years. There was no forward progress then. And that just raises in my mind the horrifying thought that maybe the 70 years where we've seen this accelerated progress may have been slightly anomalous, that actually most of, of human history 
we've tended to live under dictatorships of one kind or another. You know, whether a, a Putinite or a North Korean system would have been recognizable in its essentials to Nebuchadnezzar or one of the Egyptian pharaohs, right? The, the, the normal status of, of most human beings for most of the last 10,000 years has been some kind of serfdom and oppression. And I just wonder whether people are going to look back at the period between the Second World War and the lockdowns as, as a kind of little interglacial in between the rather colder and darker times on either side. Well, Dan, that's a, a depressing note to finish the interview. Great to have you back on Between the Lines, Dan. Thanks very much, Tom. All the best, mate. That was British Lord Daniel Hannan, a columnist with the UK Sunday Telegraph, who was a UK Conservative member of the European Parliament from 1999 to 2019. Up next, where to for Peter Dutton's Liberals? Well, these are dark days for the Liberal Party, out of office federally and in all but two states. It's widely believed that the party of Menzies and Howard is bereft of ideas, talents and leadership. That's the conventional wisdom, at least. The country, we're told, has moved on from the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison era. It's become a more progressive place. And as the Liberals are in the political doldrums, Anthony Albanese and his Labor government, well, they're in the political stratosphere, aren't they? So with federal parliament about to resume, the question here is, what should Peter Dutton do to reverse the Liberal Party's fortunes in 2023 and beyond? Amanda Stoker is a former Liberal Senator from Queensland, and she's a columnist with the Australian Financial Review. Hi there, Amanda. Hello, Tom. Lovely to be with you. And Georgina Downer is Chief Executive of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. Hi there, Georgina. Hi, Tom. Great to be with you. Now, as I say, the conventional wisdom, uh, it's not always right, but it does say that the Morrison government's uh, election defeat last year, that constitutes an existential crisis for the Liberal Party, Georgina. Is that your sense too? Uh, not at all. I mean, the, the death of political parties is often talked about, but rarely right. Uh, the fracturing on the centre-right and also on the left has, uh, is, is as old as time immemorial. Um, you just look back to the 1940s when the United Australia Party completely collapsed and the Liberal Party was formed. I think the, the sense after every election defeat is one of, complete disaster often, but actually the reality is things go in cycles in politics and time in the opposition, time on the back bench, these are the times that um, opposition parties need to use to rebuild, reflect on values. And it's actually really important, I think, for democracy that, uh, you know, and our political system that we have a bit of toing and froing and, uh, and this sense that you, you need to need to go back to basics. Yeah, it's widely believed that the political gravity in this country, at least, has shifted leftwards on policy. And the Liberals, uh, we're often told this, they're increasingly out of touch with uh, the socially progressive sentiments of women, younger voters. Amanda Stoker. Look, I don't think that is the complete story. It's certainly true to say that women and younger voters didn't overwhelmingly support the coalition at the last election. Um, but I don't think that represents... A, a trend for all time. This commentary that says 
um, you know, because it was largely urban left-leaning liberals who lost their seats to, um, you know, what the people who call themselves teal independents, uh, their independence is probably questionable, um, that the party was being punished for being insufficiently progressive. But I see it as more of a problem of a lack of differentiation. Um, there was very little daylight on the values offered at the last election between um, the Labor Party and those on the Liberal side. And in many ways, differentiation from the position of your deeply held values is how you help Australians understand what you're about and shows them that you are fair income about those beliefs. Georgina, Amanda mentioned the uh, so-called teal independence. Now, what about those former blue ribbon electorates the Liberals lost to, not just the teals, by the way, but to the Greens in, in Brisbane? This was the last federal election. So you've got seats like Warringah, Wentworth, North Sydney in Sydney, Kuyong, Goldstein in Melbourne, Curtin in Perth. They're all teal. And then in Brisbane, you've got Ryan and Brisbane itself. They're green. So... Georgina, how difficult will it be for Peter Dutton's opposition to win back these seats? Well, firstly, I would say you never write off any seat as impossible. Uh, politics is about the art of the possible. Um, but what I'd also say is over the weekend, we saw uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers release a 6,000-word essay on what he calls values-based capitalism. I think this is a great opportunity for Peter Dutton to start talking once again about values. Um, sure, Jim Chalmers has one approach, but the values of the Liberal Party that Peter Dutton leads, the values of private enterprise, that it's not the state that's picking winners in markets, that it's individuals and their businesses that drive success and enterprise, that they're the values that will resonate in, across Australia, but I think particularly in those seats that the Liberals just lost. Uh, I would also say don't enter into some sort of bidding war with Labor over over particular policies that they're champion. That I mean, as Amanda said, it's a race to the bottom and it compromises the Liberals' reputation for being sound economic managers. And that might explain why in 2022, uh, Georgina and Amanda, the Liberals actually lost more support to parties on the right than the Teals and left-wing alternatives. So I think of UAP, this is Clive Palmer's party, the One Nation Party, it's Pauline Hanson, and the Liberal Democrats. Amanda, how does the Liberal Party stop the bleeding of the Conservative support to those fringe parties on the right spectrum? You're right, Tom. The Liberals bled in those urban areas we've talked about already, but also particularly in the Senate on that notional right as well. well so for a Conservative Some might voter, say sorry, that's how you lost your seat because of well, the bleeding on the right. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it kind of is. Um, you know, for a Conservative voter, there wasn't much difference between Labor and the Liberals on climate and energy policy, on uh, the, the volume of spending we were prepared to enter into, on our attitudes to family or meaningfully protecting fundamental freedoms in either the COVID context or in the religious freedom context. And so... If we aren't offering anything to people who really feel strongly about those things either, then you bleed to those fringe parties on the right. It really was an interesting election in that the coalition had become a little bit disconnected from its core beliefs and as a consequence was able to be wedged on both the left and the right. And to lose talent like Ben Small and Greg Mirabella and the like, 
on that right side as well means that you've got um, serious impacts on both sides. I think, I mean, the answer is the same though at both ends, and that is deeply reconnect to the beliefs that made our party strong. And let's remember that after Tony Abbott's landslide victory over Kevin Rudd in 2013, the orthodoxy was that it was a Labor Party that faced an existential crisis because they were badly splintered. So it goes both ways. (laughs) My guests are former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker from Brisbane and Georgina Downer at the Robert Menzies Institute in Melbourne. Now, uh, several guests on this program have highlighted a political realignment that's really more evident in the United States and the UK. And it's really a sign of the new cultural and economic divides that's taking place in both of those countries. You've got Americans and Brits, they're ending their long-time political allegiances. Uh, In recent years, for instance, the the Tories, the Republicans, they've won over key segments of of working class, uh, mainly non-university educated, erstwhile Labor and Democratic voters. And at the same time, as we've been discussing, uh, they've bled traditional voters to more progressive parties. Georgina Downer, does all this mean that Western politics, you know, we always used to talk about Western politics as being characterised by the old left-right ideological divide between capital and labour. Does that mean that Western politics is now defined increasingly around identity issues, many of which are shaped by values? Well, that's what the left wants them to be defined by, I would say. Um, and if the, the centre-right adopts those those battles as their own, then, yeah, then that, that may, be, may very well end up being the case. But I think ultimately carving up society into identity groups fails to recognise all that binds us together and all the universal values that and universal things that we care about, like your home, your family, a good sense of healthy patriotism. These are the things that Robert Menzies, who I obviously spend a lot of time thinking about, championed back in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. And he was denouncing dividing society up onto class or um, prioritising one group over another. Um, if, if we go back to those, you know, quite frankly, bad old days of of dividing society into groups based on your affiliations, that doesn't get us anywhere. I actually think this is this is um, a, a historical trend that's revisiting us, and we should push right against it and don't don't buy into it. Yeah, yeah, but the the, the Republicans uh, in the United States, the Tories in Britain, they've really turned their back on. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher when it comes to globalisation, free trade, immigration, welfare. These parties now have embraced, you know, big government, if you like, in the US, higher tariffs, in the UK, higher taxes. Amanda, any lessons here for Peter Dutton and the Australian Liberals? Look, I think there are significant lessons to learn. I mean, the Republicans and um, the Conservatives in the UK may have been going down those paths, but they're not really prospering for it. And Georgina's diagnosis here of the harm that can be done by carving up society into, you know, tribes of people to be pitted against one another um, has to end in tears in the long term. Universalism trumps division every day of the week. And it is, I think, significant that those values that underpin universalism are at the heart of what it means to be a liberal in this country in the in a way that transcends all the different bits of the broad church of our party. Many of the challenges that are trying to be navigated 
by the Republicans and the Conservatives in the UK and in the US um, are about trying to straddle this urban and um, suburban or rural divide. But if you just go back to the beliefs upon which our party was established, they work just as well in the city as they do in the burbs. Yeah, you talk about straddling that divide. Some people say that divide's growing larger. And that brings us to the voice to parliament. Now, the opposition is working out its position before the referendum later this year. Now, the media generally support the voice. And according to the polls, so does a majority of Australians. And last year, my ABC colleague, uh, Sarah Ferguson from the 7.30 show, she put it to Peter Dutton that the voice represented, quote, the right side of history. Now, if she's right, Georgina, why not just be on the right side of history and support the voice? Well, I think that's uh, an extraordinary thing to say. Um, there's absolutely no guarantee of any result in the referendum. You only have to look back to the 1951 referendum on the communist on the attempt to ban the Communist Party um, that Robert Menzies championed. Uh, when the referendum campaign began, support for that was 80% to change the con constitution. By the time people went to the ballot box six weeks later, it lost 49.51. Well, that's interesting. So, you know, wow. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no guarantee of a result. I would say um, it's important to reflect on the fact that it, it shouldn't be... Uh, political leaders shouldn't just treat outcomes as a fait accompli. They re should reflect on their beliefs and their values and and make history by championing those values. And, and for Peter Dutton, this is about reflecting on what is the Australian liberal tradition, which is fundamentally about equality and individual dignity and, and not prioritising groups over each other and, and formulate a, an argument and a position on, on that basis. I think we all recognise the, the huge issues around Aboriginal disadvantage in this country and, and you know, that's been in the media a lot over the, the last few weeks. But, but we are talking about a really, really big change to our country's governance and the lessons you can learn from, for example, in Malaysia, where they elevate um, ethnic Malays over any other any other group and race in that country, just charge just in, you know it, it increases and and it engenders ethnic divisions. And I think we need to reflect very very deeply on what's the liberal small l liberal answer to to this question. Yeah, you talk about a change to our country's governance and uh, the Prime Minister does say this is just modest change, but he also told the Gama Festival last year, Amanda, that if The Voice says something should happen, quote, it would be a very brave government that said it shouldn't. So what does that tell you about The Voice and what this referendum is about? Well, I think it tells us that Mr Albanese is engaging in a little bit of doublespeak here. He's saying one thing to Indigenous communities and saying something very different in, um, in urban areas or on the, on the national stage. And what's worrying about that is that Australians are being asked to give their consent to a fundamental change in the way that we allocate the rights of citizens. So instead of being based on the fact that we are all equal based on our deep human dignity, we are instead going to have slightly different rights based on the colour of our skin and our ethnicity. That, to me, is a terribly troubling thing. And every time those distinctions have been made in history has ended in the worst of tears. Um, but he's not giving us any of the detail that's needed to understand whether or not it is the revolutionary change 
um, he talks about at Gama or whether it's the modest change he talks about in the city. And it means that um, Australians should approach this with great caution, particularly given that for all of its faults, um, as Churchill said, the democracy we have is better than anything else we've um, encountered in the past. So we have something that's pretty tried and tested, albeit imperfect, and um, you wouldn't want to throw that out on the altar of identity politics in a way that was ill-informed. Amanda, Georgina, great to have you on Radio National. Thank you, Tom and Georgina. Thanks, Tom. Great to be on your program. That was former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker, now a columnist at the Australian Financial Review, and Georgina Downer, Director of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. Now, finally, if I were to nominate the greatest Australian diplomat and Mandarin of modern times, he would be Richard Woolcott, who died this week aged 95. Since the early 1950s, Dick Woolcott was a leading defender of the Australian national interest across the world, most notably Southeast Asia. A former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, as well as our ambassador to the United Nations, he was arguably one of Australia's most prominent authorities on Indonesia, where he served as our ambassador during the tumultuous 1970s. I spoke with Dick on this program in 2019, and we started by talking about his latest, and as it now happens, his last book. It was a book of photos called incredible Indonesia, an arc of many awesome islands. G'day, Tom. Wonderful to have you here. Now, your new book is, uh, is a book of photographs, beautiful photographs of Indonesia. Why did you decide to compile this publication? Well, photography was really my hobby, and my father gave me an old box camera just after um, I left school. And uh, in the end, I did four major books. One was, the first one was uh, Incredible Indonesia, an arc of many awesome islands. The second was the Philippines, a picturesque archipelago in Asia and the Southwest Pacific. The third one was Africa, a continent of contrasts. And the fourth one was the Russian Federation, mm. including the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, as it was when I first went there. That's right. You the went Russian... there when Joseph Stalin died in the early to mid-1950s. Yeah, Stalin, Stalin died when yeah. I was there, yeah. Yeah. But it's now, of course, called the Russian Federation. But Indonesia, though, is your true love. I mean, no two neighbours anywhere on earth are so comprehensively unalike, correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, Australia is a continental landmass and Indonesia is a, it's a very long chain of islands. And that's not to mention the language and the culture and the religion and the history. Yeah, right? that's, all, all of that is true. Yeah. One of your predecessors, Sir Alan Watt, uh, he wrote in 1967, quote, few international problems in the post-war period have proved as difficult for Australia 
as the development of a friendly and effective policy towards Indonesia. Now, that was in 1967. Have things changed in more than 50 years, Dick? <laughs> no, it's extraordinary. In, in half a century, uh, it's exactly the same now as it was then. Now's as good a time as any to say that Indonesia is on track to be the world's fourth biggest economy by 2050. Indonesia is our largest wheat export and more than a million Australians travel to Indonesia annually. It's pretty encouraging for the relationship. It is, but I think most Australians are sort of unaware of the size and importance of Indonesia. And really there's a major task for people like us to see that they do become better informed about where Indonesia is going. My guest is Richard Wolcott, one of the most distinguished diplomats and mandarins in our nation's history. He's just written a book. It's a collection of photos, really, called Incredible Indonesia, an arc of many awesome islands. And in the book, Dick, you've got some beautiful photos. You've got one here with you and Suharto. He's cuddling a koala. I think this was just outside of Townsville in Queensland in 1975, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I went to uh, Indonesia in uh, 1974. As the ambassador? On posting as ambassador, right. yes. And that trip by Suharto to Australia, that was his only trip, wasn't it? Yes. And I remember there was a very good cartoon at the time which has um, a pram with monarchism on it and... Uh, uh, Howard is sort of pushing it as saying, um, mm. you know, you're not really ready for the big world yet. Well, I think we are ready for yeah. the big world. But on Tahara, he never came back here and some of your critics said that that's because of the, the widespread protest that would greet him if he came here after the uh, Indonesian annexation of East Timor. I think that's right. Uh, the, the Timor situation is, of course, complex and nothing that I dealt with um, during my time as ambassador in Indonesia uh, was as complex and demanding as dealing with the future of this Portuguese colony. And this year marks the 20th anniversary of the Australian-led liberation of East Timor from Indonesia. How's history treated the Howard government's decision to lead that effort? Well, I think... Uh, the majority of the Australian community probably hasn't focused on that. But, uh, you know, in the end, we did the sensible thing of acknowledging that the uh, the then President Habibi had called for a referendum. The referendum took place and there was a good majority in favour of um, uh, establishing an independent country. And you deal with all this in your memoirs, The Hot Seat. Now, you've been a strong supporter of deep engagement in Asia for generations, and there's no question our trade links with the region have been expanding. But our general knowledge of the region, especially Indonesia, frankly, remains poor. Why? I don't really know the answer to that. Really, Australians should know much more than they do about this very large neighbour of increasing importance. I mean, as I say, it stretches a distance from um, Cooktown in New Zealand right across uh, to the west to um, Christmas Island, mm. I suppose. We've had on this show Stephen Fitzgerald, as you know, a former yes. colleague of yours who was our first ambassador to the People's Republic of China. And in 1987... Um, he he commissioned an Asian Studies Council blueprint for the study of Asian languages yes. from kindergarten to university, and he said this was going. This was back in 1987, so more than three decades. 
uh, ago. He says this was going to change, quote, the whole intellectual and cultural horizon of Australians. Yet, Dick, the reality today is far less encouraging. Here's some facts. According to the Asia Education Foundation, the proportion of Year 12 students studying a foreign language has dropped from 40% in the 1960s to about 10% in the present school year. And get a load of this. Although the four priority languages are Chinese, Japanese, Indonesian and Korean, French remains the most popular language in New South Wales schools. And here's a kicker for you. Only 0.3% of HSC enrolments in 2014 learnt Indonesian. Yes, that is indeed uh, very strange and the Australian community does really need to change its uh, wider community, its attitude towards Indonesia. But we've, we've been hearing this for the last three decades. Why hasn't anything changed? I know. You mentioned Steve Fitzgerald. I was talking to Steve Fitzgerald only about this about four days ago and he said then that, you know, it's disastrous that Nothing that we had expected mm. to happen has in fact happened. But, but it's not just the schools, it's also our media. I did a News Factiva archive search in the past week yeah. and I reviewed the references to Donald Trump, Theresa May and Joko Widodo or Jokowi in the ABC, The Guardian, The Australian, The Financial Review and The Sydney Morning Herald. These are the leading elite publications yes. and broadcaster in the country. 226 references to Donald Trump in the last week. 154 references to Theresa May, seven references to Jokowi. And we've got the yeah. Indonesian presidential election next month. What does that tell you? Well, that really tells me that uh, we've fallen a long way behind from where we should be in our understanding and relationship with Indonesia. Mm, so much for being engaged in Asia. Yep. Well, we we live in Asia, and it's time we sort of acknowledge that. You mentioned that uh, the favourite favourite language, I think you said, was French. Mm. Well, that is ridiculous if you're living in Asia. <laughs> yes. It's, now, non, it's nonsensical. Yeah. Now, for the best part of half a century, uh, you've not just been a prominent proponent of engagement with Asia, you're also a prominent exponent of a republic. How will changing our constitutional government really change the way we deal with the region? Well, I think uh, the Republic is not just a sort of nominal issue because take a situation where the Queen of England is at a trade fair in Malaysia, which I saw at one stage. Now, who, who is trade is she pushing? Australia's, because she's our head of state, or the British, because she's also their head of state. And that's why I think it is a confusion uh, which really ought to be removed. It's uh, a majority of Australians are Republicans. Yes, but in November, news polls showed a slump in support for a republic to a 25-year low. So surely the case for an Australian head of state, Dick Woolcock, is now doomed. It's not doomed, but we really need to resuscitate it. And I think that can be done. I mean... Uh, How can you do that when the younger royals are so popular? Well, I suppose it's a matter of explaining that the younger royals fundamentally represent the United Kingdom. They don't represent Australia. And when there's a competition, say, at a trade fair uh, between Australia and, um, and Indonesia... 
Uh, Which side are they going to support? Mm -hmm. Okay, finally, you're 92 this year. You're still fighting fit. You still play tennis? (laughs) No, I'm afraid I don't. (laughs) I had an operation on my left leg, so I can't dash around the tennis court anymore (laughs) like I used to. Now, Dr Mahadia, whom you've known well for several decades, he made arguably the greatest political comeback by winning last year's Malaysian election at age 92. (laughs) So do you wish to make a comeback in diplomacy, mate? (laughs) No, not really. I'll turn 92 in uh, June, and what I'm focused on is getting these four books we've mentioned of uh, photographs and supporting explanatory text published. Dick, always great to see you. Thanks very much, Tom. That was Richard Wolcott four years ago in 2019. That was on Between the Lines. Now, Dick died this week at age 95. Now, I've known Dick uh, since the 1990s, and he was not only uh, one of our most distinguished diplomats and mandarins, he was a man of letters and a dear friend. Farewell, Richard Wolcott. Well, that's it for Between the Lines for another week. And in case you missed last week's episode on Jacinda Ardern's polarising prime ministership, Russia's rebound in Ukraine, and a possible Tony Abbott comeback, go to ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast, which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.